0: Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you, who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Runlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. I'm so excited you've decided to join us and want to thank you for sharing out our podcast and reviewing it and liking it so that it can continue to grow. We're so excited about the growth in all of our programs, especially our Facebook group has really grown so much over the last couple months. And we'd like to invite you to become a member if you're a mom and want to spend time with other like-minded moms who want to be more mission-driven. We discuss the podcast. We have Lighting Our Lamps Mondays and Thursday mornings where we're going through the Mission Driven Life book. We ask questions and put up quotes and just generally try to nurture each other in our mission path. Also want to mention that this weekend is the last day for the 30% off of the MDM celebration event. We've put up quite a few video and written testimonials for you so that you can see the kind of experiences women had last year at the event, and we know you'll have again this year if Indeed, something does happen with uh, coronavirus insurgents, and we have to postpone it. We will do that. Just push it to later in the fall. Or if we go online, then we will still hold the event no matter what happens. And so we'd love to have you join us there live at the event, have the recordings afterward. If you'd like to add that on, then of course, the two months of mentoring with me so that you can really imbue that vision into your life that you'll gain there. So hopefully you can join us. Today I have the privilege of talking about a really great couple. Uh, The story will hover predominantly around Millard Fuller because he was the instigator of it, but uh, he and his wife definitely did it together. Linda was a huge part of, of all the work he was involved in. Millard Fuller was born in Lynette, Alabama on January 3rd, 1935. And he said that Sunday and church went together in our family like ham and eggs. So that was a big part of the way that they lived their lives, going to church every single week and going back for evening worship service. Now, when Millard was a young boy, I think he was probably three-ish, his mother died. And later on, his dad went on to remarry. So he had a stepmother that was pretty good to him. But... His dad was a very attentive father and spent a lot of time with Millard, which I'll talk about more in just a minute. In terms of their faith and how they interacted, they were definitely active in church. But one kind of, I don't know, sad story that Millard tells is about how he was very fidgety boy and he would, um, you know mess around in his seat and couldn't hold still. And his dad was constantly telling him to be quiet in church. And on a couple occasions when he was really noisy, his dad actually took him down to the basement and beat him. So that's kind of, I don't know. I mean, that was, that was kind of the culture. His dad seems like overall, he was a pretty good guy. And so I think that was more done back then, but it didn't help. Millard grew really bored of church and started falling asleep in church regularly. But when he was 13, he was baptized. It was a common practice in their church. And later on, he went on to um, actually truly be converted to God. But during those younger formative years, he just wasn't sure how he felt about God in church. And it was all pretty boring to him. He, at age six, his father gave him a pig. And said, son, you raise him and you can make yourself some money. And so his father taught him how to raise the pig and how to manage his money. And over like a year, year and a half period of time, he raised this pig and made some money on it, which which was $150 in today's money. And so he saved it all. Now, his dad owned a local grocery store. And his dad was actually really good with his money and in his business practices. And this was a huge um, part of who Millard became because his dad spent a lot of time with him and they were, they were close and his dad spent a lot of time teaching him giving him ideas for different business practices he could do and teaching him how to do that and started him at age six. I mean, almost from the time Millard could remember, he was involved in some entrepreneurial venture. And so he learned so much about the principles and practices that, that create success in business endeavors and financial endeavors. And that, you know, served him well later in life. And that combined with their... Um, Christian principles that were taught in the Bible made him quite adept at, um, making money and saving it and, and being careful with it, treating customers well and all that kind of thing. So in seventh grade, he took his savings and he invested them in domesticated rabbits. And for the next three years, he built up a population of over 100 rabbits. (laughs) Um, he sold and dressed them uh, he he sold dressed rabbits to restaurants. His father's store and his father's store, and he sold the babies to children to have them for pets. So it was this ongoing breeding practice, and he was able to kill them quickly and dress them to be sold, and he was able to sell them to kids. He overcame a lot of obstacles and troubles. He tells the story of the dogs getting into the rabbits and his father having to kind of rescue him there. he really learned, this is another great principle he learned as a young, as a boy, was to work really hard. I mean, those having a hundred rabbits, can you imagine, (laughs) it was a ton of work. And he made quite a lot of money at it, but he really got tired of it. And so when his family moved out onto a little bit more land, he took the opportunity to sell off the rest of his rabbits and put all the money in savings again. And so when he was in 10th grade, he took out the money and his new business venture was to buy cows. And he, it was much easier to take care of them. They just grazed. He said, I developed a real love for business and for making money before graduating from high school. My dad and I talked a lot about making money and about business. He spent a lot of time with me. He did a great job of teaching me and motivating me to be self-reliant and self-starting. Which what what an incredible gift to give your child that they can uh, be confident in their own financial practices, that they can trust themselves, to make money and save it, and to always take care of themselves. Such an incredible gift his dad gave him. So these foundations of self-reliance and um, and confidence in himself and his ability to take care of himself and belief in and worship of God really laid a great foundation for Millard. Everything wasn't perfect at their house. Not everything went well all the time. But overall, he was an attentive father who really tried to pass on to his son the things that he was good at. He worked in his businesses and went to school throughout the week. And then he also helped his dad in his business. He ran deliveries sometimes on weeknights and on the weekends. And he was just, I mean, it is incredible to read about him and learn about him. I mean, all his life really, but especially up to the time that he was 30, like he never stopped. He was totally just like this energizer bunny that got up in the morning and just worked hard all day long. There was never a dull moment. There was never downtime for anything else. He was studying really hard or he was working really hard. And that was really his life. And And he got a lot of um, his social needs met through the interactions that he had in the projects that he was involved in. So... A couple of really important things happened to him in high school that really laid a foundation for the rest of his life. He had, done, he had kind of been involved in church and he had kind of been involved in business in school, but he, he took on two different um, kind of projects that became very formative for him. The first one was that he found out about a program called Junior Achievement. He signed up in it, he worked hard, and he became... And so you do these mini-projects where you start companies together. It's it's about learning to be entrepreneurial. And so it really magnified what he'd already learned, and he learned even more practical skills in Junior Achievement. And he became the president of the company that his group formed. And eventually, as you can imagine, because he worked so hard and was so diligent he became a delegate to the National Conference for the Junior Achievement in his area. He came back from this conference just totally on fire. And so it became his goal to now recruit people to Junior Achievement. So all of his life, he was a public speaker. He spoke, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you know, maybe a hundred times in a year at some points, but he just... He was always speaking to church groups and business groups and community groups just all the time. And so he developed this skill young and this gift and, and was a, a good speaker. And so he went around recruiting youth for the program. And by the, by the age of 19, he was the youngest director in the country for Junior Achievement. He said, by the end of high school, I had developed a strong desire to go into business. I didn't know yet what kind of business I wanted to, it to be. I just wanted it to be big, profitable, and successful. I wanted to be a millionaire too. This was a sure sign of success in life. So by the time he was out of high school, he was kind of set on his path. Being a millionaire was how you knew you were successful. And that became an overriding dominant goal for his life. He was always involved in lots of things. He spent his summers traveling and serving, which I'll tell you about in a minute. He wrote for his school paper. He was a Democratic delegate. He even was on the baseball team until he got injured and couldn't play anymore. He said he went on to Auburn College uh, for his undergraduate work, and he said, in my entire college career at Auburn, I spent less than three weekends on campus. He also earned his way through college uh, working and saving. He saved up all through high school to help him get through college. And then... um, Later on, worked his way through law school as as well. So in the meantime, in high school, he was asked, he was just kind of seen as a leader. He was a really hard worker. Adults could see that he was driven and hardworking and dependable. And so they trusted him with different projects. And so one of the things, you know, spiritually that helped him really turn a corner was he was asked to attend a church conference and there was a youth uh, and, and, and he went to this conference and it really lit a fire under him. He loved starting things. He loved big projects. He loved uh, being a part of organizations. And he became very adept at putting together all kinds of organizations, which is something that we focus more heavily on in level three of of the academy, because Really, organizations are the main ways in which we service humanity, and so it's important to understand, to have a skill set, understand how organizations work, and he learned these skills as a young man, especially through junior achievement and through his business practices, and so because he understood that and he was on fire about it, he started recruiting He was named president of this new, so this church conference had never had a youth branch. And at this first conference, they decided they were going to form a youth group. And so they formed and they made Millard the president, but nobody knew what he was supposed to do. Nobody told him what to do. And so for the first year, he didn't do anything. And when he went back to the conference the second year, everybody elected him as president again. And he was like, I didn't do anything. Why aren't you electing me president? And they're like, well, we don't know who else could do the job. And so he decided he wasn't going to make the same mistake. And he was going to do something about it. And so the second year, he he decided what he was going to do is put on a huge rally. And he wanted to get over 100 youth there. And he pulled it off. He traveled like crazy. And he spoke everywhere he could. And he talked to youth like crazy and lit them on fire. And so they put this church youth rally on. And it was a huge success. And he lit on fire about, you know, he loved leadership. And so every weekend he would go visit churches and he would meet with youth and speak to them and light them on fire about being involved in as youth in the churches for years, all through college, he was involved in this work. He was involved in, I think he continued to be involved in junior achievement. I'm not sure, although maybe at 19, he had to graduate out. I'm not sure about that part, but he definitely, he hitchhiked all over the place. That was, it was a time when you could still do that and Every weekend he was, he was off to some church and he would visit and get to know people. He's really extroverted. He really, really loved people. He was good with people. And so he would get these youth to get involved and he had a huge, uh, success rate with that. So during, he says, without a doubt, my college career had been full. So these were the activities that took him all through college. And as you can see already, these first few laws of life mission, he's, he's more and more devoted to God, bringing people to God, um, getting them involved, helping them to build up, you know, churches and things like that. He's learning principles and trying to govern himself by these principles, the principles he's taught, uh, Christian values, business principles, principles of ethics and hard work. These were all the guiding principles of his life. A lot of really important self-discovery happened during this time and self-discipline, self-management. So these were, he was laying this foundation of life mission for himself. And then, uh, as we'll go into in just a minute, he had this incredible education in law school and through his twenties. So he says for three years, I had packed in as much as I possibly could talking about his college days, days, nights, weekends, vacations, and summers. I always had something going. I had heard and believed that youth is the time to do something and become somebody. My aim was to fill my life with as many varied experiences as time allowed. All the while, I had a sense of being close to God and in tune with his reality, his will for my life. And so we really had this sense of um, mission at a, at a young age, and he wanted to do good things for God. He wanted his life to be centered on God. And so that's what he was being, that's what he was focusing, focusing on. So he finishes college, and he's not sure what to do next. A pastor had recommended that he go into the ministry. I mean, he's spending all of his weekends speaking at these different churches. I mean, it seems like the obvious choice for him. And he thought a lot about it, and, and he decided that that wasn't what he wanted to do. And I think it was just because he was so in love with entrepreneurism and business that he just couldn't see himself settling into the ministry. So he wasn't sure what else to do. And one day, he's sitting there, um, and a buddy walks over to him and says, "You know, you know what you should do? You should go to law school with me. And he thought about it and he didn't have any other plan. So he thought, that's a good idea. I'll go to law school and maybe when I'm done, I'll open a law practice and that'll be the business I go into. Because again, he wasn't sure what business he wanted to do. He just knew that he loved it. So six days after he graduated from college, he entered law school. So this guy never, you know, never stops. He said of it, law school was tough. I thought I'd been studying a lot at Auburn, but I was yet to learn the real meaning of the word study. They, had, they would be given cases. It was a case study um, law school. And so you were just given cases. You were expected to study several every single day and come to class and be able to cite them and talk about them. And it was tons and tons and tons of reading. Really, really well versed in his logical thinking skills, getting into original writings, understanding his country better, understanding how we became who we are better. Lots of really great things happened educationally and in that law for love of humanity time of his life in law school. The thing that was really fascinating about this time in law school is he only had enough money for tuition and some food when he started. That was it. He had used up all the rest of his money through college. And so he, you know, what do you do? Well, you go to work. And so he wasn't getting a lot of sleep. He was going to he was going to bed at 2 a.m. He got a job as a waiter and then he got a second job and he didn't really know how he was going to do it, but he just found a way. So he's studying like mad all day long. He's working a couple jobs at night and it's just Not enough activity for him And so he goes to A young Democrats meeting on campus He hadn't really done anything like that because he'd just been Trying to get some money in the door and get The first semester of, of college That's all he could, of law school, that's all he could do Was just totally focus on like How am I going to do this So that he could, you know, not fail and get money in the door. And so when things settled down a little bit, he went to this young Democrats meeting. He wanted to meet some other people. He had been involved in Democratic campaigns and and that kind of thing. And when he was there, he met a man named Morris, a young man named Morris Dees. And Miller didn't have a car, but but Morris did. And so Morris offered to give him a ride home. Well, Morris happened to be in love with business as well. They started a conversation with went which went late into the early hours of the morning. They talked and talked and talked and talked and they just hit it off beautifully and they decided in that moment that they were going to work together and it ended up being this beautiful symbiotic relationship. They just worked together so great. They brought different skills to the table and um, they both were very driven, very hardworking, and put in all kinds of time and energy to try to make a go of it. So they didn't wait until they were done with law school. They started right away. They brainstormed what they could do to get started. They had the idea that they would sell mistletoe and they would sell cypress knees. Both of those business ventures proved to be pretty much impossible. They um, had he says he says within 2 weeks we had orders for more than 3000 pounds of mis- mistletoe but then a sudden realization hit us we didn't have 3000 pounds of mistletoe we didn't even have 1 pound so they decided to actually we they decided to actually weigh mistletoe and discovered that one large box was only 1 pound so they had totally gone about it the wrong way. They hadn't even weighed mistletoe. They didn't even know what they were selling. And so if they could manage to get their hands on it, they could sell a lot of mistletoe. Because, you know, people in that business knew a good deal when they saw one. Well, obviously, they couldn't get their hands on enough mistletoe. And they had to write everybody back and say, never mind, we can't get our hands on the mistletoe. And even though they were able to sell some cypress knees, it was dirty grungy time consuming work they figured if they could get something for free and turn it into something then they would be profit for sure but it was too time intensive and they couldn't make too time intensive and they couldn't make a go of that either One contact suggested that they import holly wreaths to young groups for fundraising. And this was probably the greatest business tip they ever got because for years and years and years, although they were involved in other business ventures too, they would tap into community organizations and provide fundraising opportunities for them. And it was just a, it ended up being hugely successful on many fronts for a lot of different things that they decided to do. These holly wreaths were a huge success the scouts sold them door to door for christmas and the scouts made money and so did they they also sold christmas trees and holly berries dipped in paint so they just had business idea after business idea they would get together and they would have these massive brainstorming sessions he said that morris was a was was an ideas guy he always had a lot of great ideas and so they would just try them i mean they were just young and you know, excited and on fire, and they were willing to try anything, they were willing to fail. And, you know, a huge lesson that we can learn from Millard is to not be afraid to fail. I think that's one of his greatest strengths, because he failed a lot, and I'll tell you more about other failures that he had um, going forward, but he just was not afraid to try anything, because he did that he could continue learning you know our brain learns from every failure that feedback is so important to it to help us learn what works and what doesn't work and what we can do and what we can't do and that was really the key to their success was to try anything that seemed feasible and learn from it and get better at it. Millard said, For the next eight years, we were almost inseparable companions. We worked hard and did things over and over that most people said couldn't be done. Family and friends laughed at us, but we built up a million-dollar business within six years on our crazy ideas. And that's exactly what they did. They sold birthday cakes on campus at $2 each a profit. He said they were selling four cakes a day. They invested all their profits in real estate, and by the time they graduated from law school, he said, we owned almost half a city block. More than 40 students rented homes, apartments, and trailer space from us, and we were collecting $800 a month in rent. In our senior year, we sold these holdings at a profit of $14,000, and I'll just tell you that $14,000 in today's money is $125,000. So, they didn't just pay for law school. They came out of law school with a whole bunch of money. You know, seventy-five, uh, you know, seventy thousand dollars each, almost. Well, I guess sixty thousand dollars each, and um, and still had other holdings and still had their business ventures that were going on. Really, really, really phenomenal what they did. Now, right about this time, while he was in law school, Miller did something that I've told you about. Other great people doing that. I just think is so phenomenal. He really, he said, I had a definite feeling that, that our business would succeed big and that it would eventually make me the millionaire I desired to be. So he has this driving passion and this work ethic. He's willing to do whatever it takes. He wants to be a millionaire no matter what, but he also wants to be a good man. So he said, about this time i made a covenant with myself and with god not to become selfish and self-centered in the process of building up a business and acquiring wealth i don't remember the exact day of my agreement but i distinctly recall recollect sitting in the quiet of my room one evening and thinking the matter through i said to myself look you've wanted to make money all your life but you're also involved with the church So you've got to work these things together. You're not going to be the stereotyped greedy rich man. You're going to be humble and sincere and generous. You're not going to crowd God out of your life in the process of building a business and making money. After that, I went about building the business with great vigor and feeling good about it. So he's made this deal with himself and with God that he is going to build a business. But he's going to be generous He's going to remain a good, strong believer, and he's going to do good with the money that he makes. In the meantime, when he's in law school, he had been going to a movie theater to see if they wanted to advertise in some project that he and Morris were, were working on. And while he was there, the girl at the ticket stand was really cute, and they had started talking. He, she told him her name, and then the manager came out for him to talk to. He never saw the girl again, but he wanted to take her on a date. And so he figured, okay, well, I'll just call everybody in the phone book with that last name and I'll eventually find her because it was against policy to give out the phone number of the employees. So he starts making these calls. And on one of the calls, a girl answers the phone that sounds like she could be this girl. And so he starts talking to her, finds out that she doesn't work at the ticket counter, but they just chat some more, find out more and more about each other. Turns out Linda is going to be a senior in high school. She's quite a bit younger than Millard. And she really wants to date a tall guy because she's like 5'10 or 11. She finds out that Millard is 6'4 and that he's going to law school and she is really interested (laughs) so they end up going out and Millard falls in love with her pretty quickly and her parents are against it at first but they get to know him and he's a man on a mission he's going to take good care of their girl he's very driven he's very hardworking. he's in law school he's he's a good active Christian I mean he just seems like he has all the things that they would really want for their daughter so they warm up to him and they fall in love and get married just right after she graduates from high school In the meantime, he finishes up law school and they decide they've got these real estate investments and, and money from their business ventures. So they decide, okay, well, we're law school graduates. We should start a law school. Of course, that makes sense. So they start up a law firm and at first they're just meeting expenses, but they continue their, their business ventures on the side, which kind of helps supplement and make sure that they have money coming in the door. And they get better and better at the law firm stuff. They're not very good at it at first. But in the meantime, they are brainstorming about what they could do in business. And they have this really quite brilliant idea. They kind of plug into this idea that of doing a fundraiser that they did for the Boy Scouts. And so one of the, part of this, one of the parts of this brainstorming session was to, to think about organizations that maybe would want to fundraise for them. And they thought of the Future Homemakers of America. And this was an organization of girls across the country with tens of thousands of chapters across the country that were preparing themselves to be good wives and mothers in the 50s. And it was a very popular organization. And so they thought and thought and thought, what would the Future Homemakers of America want? What could they sell as a fundraiser for their organization? What would people buy from them? And they thought they would buy cookbooks they thought, okay, well, there's often copyrights on recipes, so how could we get enough recipes for a cookbook? And they're just brainstorming, right? They're just really just, they just think and think. And they really, I, I didn't write down a lot of their failures, but they had some really awful ideas too, kind of like the mistletoe. They did that kind of thing multiple times. And he would say, you know, we would push several things at once. Some of them would be horrible failures, some of them would kind of do okay, and we'd have one or two that just really took off, and we wouldn't always know which ones would really take off, but all they needed was one really great one to make up for all the other failures. They have this idea to do this cookbook. (laughs) This is so brilliant. They write letters, they write this letter to all of, well, as many as, as they can find, of home economics teachers And they ask home economics teachers for their favorite recipes. I think they wanted meat recipes in this first cookbook. These home ec teachers are so excited. I mean, I don't think there's home ec classes now. But when I was in junior high, I took a home ec class. And we learned to cook and sew and stuff like that. It was really fun. And so I don't know if they do that anymore. But that's what they did back then. And so these teachers were so excited about getting their name and recipe in a cookbook. They didn't care about getting anything out of it. So they got all these recipes and I don't think they even tried the recipes. They just trusted, well, these are home ec teachers, so they've got to be good recipes. So they just organized them in the cookbook. They didn't have any copyright that they had to to deal with. They sent it out to the future homemakers of America. We've got this cookbook for you and it's going to be really profitable for them because really all they have is their, their printing cost. And so they start... At first, they have a printer, but then eventually they bring the printing in-house. They send it out, and 11,000 chapters of the future Homemakers of America sell these cookbooks. They sold hundreds of thousands of them. And then they, they, so this really worked. It worked really well, so they duplicate it. And they start writing cookbooks for other organizations. And eventually, within two years, they were the biggest publishers of cookbooks in the country, so fascinating. They sold uh, they also started into toothbrushes. I don't know how they got the toothbrushes cheaply, but they would sell organizations would sell tooth and toothbrushes for them. and it's so incredible because they didn't even have to have a sales force. They just had to get the product out. and it kept their overhead lower. And so they had, they, by tapping into these organizations and making it a fundraiser, it decreased their profit a bit, a, a bit, but not really, because they didn't have to manage their own sales team. These organizations sold it for them. So they sold a million toothbrushes a year. They eventually put out 22 new cookbooks. They bought new office space. They built this office building. And then eventually, within six months, it wasn't big enough for them. And so they had to add another 10,000 square feet In 1963, they hit their goal. He was 29. He was officially a millionaire. His accountant brought in the paperwork to show that they were worth a million dollars and they were growing just at a rapid, rapid, rapid pace. Now they wanted 10 million. So, in the meantime, their ideas were working and they were working hard and they were getting what they wanted, except that there was this huge cost. And the cost was that they couldn't have anything else. They couldn't do anything else. In fact, Morris had bought a home out in the country and Millard lived close to the office. And so they would get up early in the morning. In fact, Millard would often go to work before the kids woke up and he would work all day and then he would come home for dinner. But Morris would usually come with him. They would brainstorm about business all during dinner and then they would go back to the office after dinner. And work until late in the night. He almost never saw his children. And he almost never saw his wife. By this time, they had two kids. And what had happened was that Linda had wanted to continue her education. And so she had decided she wanted to go to school. And Millard said, well, hey, we have plenty of money. Just hire a full-time housekeeper. So Linda went to school full-time. Millard went to work full-time. The kids saw their mom way more than their dad, but didn't often see their mom a lot when they were young. She had her first baby when she was 19. And so those four years that she was in college, you know, she would go to school and then study and try to spend time with her kids. But really the housekeeper kept the house and did the cooking and the cleaning and took care of the kids. It was, I mean, you can imagine what kind of havoc that was wreaking in their marriage and in their family. They just weren't a family. After she finished college, she tried to be more attentive to the kids. Millard was still gone all the time. It was, it was just, they were, everybody was unhappy. Millard was getting what he wanted, but Linda was more and more and more unhappy. In fact, at one point she walked into his office and told him, I don't love you anymore. And I don't know if you love me. And Millard had kind of tried to pay some attention and make some changes to kind of smooth that over, but it didn't really work. He didn't really change his habits. He didn't really do anything differently. And Linda was just beside herself. In the meantime, they were becoming millionaires. By the time he was 29, they were millionaires. They bought this home that was worth a a million and a half in today's money because when they made a million dollars, it was worth eight and a half million in today's money. So the kind of effort you'd have to put in to make $8 million today, that's the kind of effort that they put in and they did it in six years, the two of them. So he bought a big, huge house He had horses, they had luxury cars, they had full-time help, they had just everything that he had said he wanted and this was the way that he knew he was successful, that he had made it because he was a millionaire and he had all these accolades in the community. You know, everybody was like, everybody was like, you've got it made and you're a great guy and, and you've got everything and everybody wants to be you. It's interesting too. Just as a side note, this year at the retreat, we're doing Mothers of Vision, and we're going to talk all about you know we're going to gain a vision and and put goals and and to dos and true statements, and all that kind of stuff around it. And it's fascinating to look at Millard's time in these in the in his twenties and how visualization was the way that he achieved it. In fact, he says that one day he wrote a little note. Uh, they were actually sitting in church. And he wrote a little note to his wife and said, a man becomes what he thinks about. And she just kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? And he says, do you know what I'm thinking about? And she said, no. And he said, I'm thinking about a million dollars. He knew that he could have a million dollars if he focused heavily enough on it. And he did. In fact, what's interesting to me is that doesn't mean that he couldn't have gotten a million dollars another way. It probably would have taken longer, but he could have gotten a million dollars and kept his house in order. He just didn't choose to. He focused so heavily on that one thing that it just did damage to the rest of his life. So, of course, everybody thinks that he's got it made and that he's got the perfect life. Right before he gets word that he's a millionaire, he gets a letter in the mail. A good friend is asking him to go over to Africa and tour the missions and help with the missionary service over there because, of course, all through his undergraduate work, he had traveled like crazy and and done missionary work then. He said, deep inside, I knew I should go. I felt the invitation was a call from God to perform a particular service for his church. But I turned it down. In my reply, I wrote, I'll do it in two years, maybe. So he gets this call from God. He says, God sometimes calls us into service at the most inopportune times. Often we find a hundred reasons to say no. God wants our availability. He wants our hearts and minds and lives. He wants us to say in the words of Isaiah, here am I, send me. But he didn't, he said no. And ironically, it was just a few weeks later that he was informed that he was a millionaire. And yet he still was unwilling to put the business on hold, even just for a couple months to go and do this work in Africa. And I'll tell you why. He said, everyone is faced with, Two voices. He said, Do we not all hear these two voices when faced with any ethical, moral, or religious decision? I listened to the loud and sensible voice that said, Man, you've got it made. The still, small voice told me I was wrong, but I had too much to lose to decide otherwise. In fact, I had started violating the covenant I had made with God almost as soon as I made it. Back at the university, I had neglected my spiritual life, From time to time, I had attended various churches, but I was careful not to get deeply involved. So here's the irony in all of this. He knows deep down inside that he really should devote his life to God, but he's kind of afraid of what sacrifices, I guess, God might ask of him. And he wants what he wants. He wants to be a millionaire. And so he makes this covenant with God that comes from the very best place within him. But almost as soon as he makes that covenant, he starts violating it. So he goes through a handful. In fact, he's actually quite honest, painfully honest about ways that he violated this, this covenant he made with God. He went to church, but he wouldn't go to any particular church. And he wouldn't help with the, he wouldn't. He would get involved for a, a little bit, but he wouldn't pour his whole heart into getting involved in the church because he... He didn't want to make those commitments. He wanted to put his time into into his businesses. He helped form a new church and he helped get it started, but then they wanted him to do more. And he said, no, he didn't want to. In fact, he said, in truth, I came to hate the church and the demands it made on me. I hated the meetings. I hated the work of keeping it going. I hated all that went with keeping up my image of being a good Christian businessman. In reality, one of the underlying reasons for working in the church was to create this image of myself among my friends and associates in the culture of the united states especially in the south especially then it was important it's important to project a christian image the successful wholesome young man is active in church he is a christian thus much of what i did for the church was for my own credit and praise. So during these years of being a a young married couple, they would attend church and he had even helped in church projects. And he seemed like a man totally and wholly devoted to God, but in his heart, he wasn't. He didn't do those daily practices. He doesn't say how much he was praying. I don't know about that part of his spiritual life, but he definitely was doing it to get the praise of the world and to be seen by men. He said he was also very stingy. He had promised himself that he'd be generous, but he gave very little. He said when he made $100,000, he gave $80 a month, less than 1%, even though there's a biblical mandate to give at least 10%. He rationalized that it would wreck the finances of the church and that it was too much to give and he'd keep it invested and give more later. He said we should give more than the biblical 10% to church and voluntary agencies. He said more tragic than the front I put up at church was the facade of my persona in life. Under a thin veneer of honesty, respectability, and Christian character lay a pile of rottenness. I tried to hide it from my friends and associates and even myself, but it kept threatening to reveal itself. He said that the one of the ways that this manifest itself was not just the front that he was putting up at church, but even though he, in fact, they came up with six principles that they always lived by, and they always treated their customers like gold and lived by these principles, but when it came to their suppliers, they were involved in questionable business practices. They weren't ethical when it came to creating contracts and they would build them so that they were very one-sided and benefited their companies only. He also helped run a campaign for a candidate who was pro-segregation, even though he didn't believe in segregation. He said more than 70 times he spoke for segregation just so that he could be involved in this candidacy and again, have the praise of the world. They bought all of these things for themselves. They bought a, a second home on Lake Jordan. They bought two speed boats. They had a full-time maid. They had what looked like absolutely everything. You know, it looked like they had, they had religion and they had a happy marriage. They, you know, were young and attractive and wealthy and just had it all, but they didn't. It was just a cancer eating away at them. And this is where he says something really fascinating about himself. I was losing my capacity to love or be loved. I was a stranger to my children. Success in business had cost me dearly. I had gained money, prestige, and material possessions, an expensive home, furniture, boats, cabin, horses, land, and cars. But what had I lost? My wife, my family, my friends, my early purpose in life, and faith itself, and I was also losing my vigorous health. So this is fascinating because he will not live all these principles he's learned. He's totally, his life is totally out of whack. The only goal in life he has is to make more money. In fact, he has a quote at the beginning of his book where he says that John D. Rockefeller was asked how how much money is enough, and he answered just a little more. And that's what consumed Millard's life at this time. And so he's not taking care of himself either. He's not loving himself. He's not loving God. He's not loving his family. He's not loving humanity. He's breaking all of those laws. It's his life is falling apart. His kidneys were out of whack. He had constant headaches. His neck always, always hurt and his back always ached. And then he developed severe breathing problems. He said, I frequently gasped for breath. Hundreds of times I grabbed hold of the arms of my chair and struggled to fill my lungs with air. Often I had to leave my desk and walk around the office or around the outside of the building in order to relax enough to resume normal breathing. His friends and business associates saw he was breaking down and they warned him. They asked him if his values hadn't gotten out of alignment and he was just not ready to listen. He was only 30 years old. He was employing 150 people. His sales were in excess of $3 million a year. The business was a success far beyond his expectations and he should have been pleased and happy. He said, instead, I was anxious, depressed, and nervous. Isn't that tragic? So here comes Linda who really saves their lives. She's already come to him and told him she doesn't know if she loves him. She doesn't think he loves her They haven't been able to resolve anything. This is about like a year and a half after he's officially a millionaire. She sits down next to him one night and she says, I'm going to leave. I don't know if we're going to make it. I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to meet with this pastor that was a friend. They had spent some time in New York on a business project and Linda had been with him part of the time and they'd come to really love this pastor that was there. And she thought that he could offer her some good advice. So she was going to go to New York and leave him with the kids And see what she could figure out. So he went out to his country house. With his son Chris that was five. And his daughter Kim who was three. And alone with myself to think. He said the next week was the loneliest most agonizing time of my life. I took Chris and Kim for walks. I tried to play with them but my heart wasn't in it. I gave them baths. Searched drawer after drawer for clothes and pajamas. Brushed little teeth and tucked them in bed at night. One evening, as I pulled the cover over Chris, he looked up at me in the dim light of his room and said softly, Daddy, I'm glad you're home. Chills ran up my spine. Many mornings, I left for the office before they awakened and came home after they'd gone to sleep. I suddenly realized that I had become a stranger in my own household. Now, here's something that's also very ironic about this whole experience. On the night of their marriage, they had signed what they had named a resolution, During their courtship, they had kind of written out a love contract together with each other. Among other directives, they had promised not to keep secrets from each other and to keep a right relationship with God. They had signed this contract, uh, framed it, and it hung over their bed in every home that they had lived in. But they had not kept it, especially Millard had not kept it. Here they were estranged and their family falling apart. So she calls him. And invites him to New York to spend some time together. And he gratefully packs up and goes. They meet up in New York. They spend some time together. It's kind of weird and estranged at first. And then they start sharing how they've been feeling. They open up. They cry together. And they pray together. And he really begins for the first time to understand all the pain that she's been in. And he says this. Then all of a sudden a strange calm came over me. I heard questions from somewhere to me. It was the voice of God asking, What are you doing to yourself? Where are you going? What is all of this leading to? I answered, It isn't leading me anywhere. I'm willing to let go if you're willing to take over. I immediately turned to Linda and related to her what I had experienced. I said, I wanted God to take over our lives and our problems. Through the tears, a smile appeared. She gripped my hand and whispered, Thank God. I feel the same way. Back in the hotel room, Linda and I decided to sell our interest in the company and our land, house, cabin, boats, horses, everything, and give away the proceeds to the poor. We felt that the material things and the drive to acquire them had pulled us apart, separating us from God and from each other. It was just that simple for us. Get rid of them. We admitted failure and humbled ourselves before God to forgive us our sins, and we resolved, with his help, to start over. Isn't that amazing and inspiring? Their story is just so phenomenal to me. He said, now we began to feel truly rich, and excitement filled us to the very core. He goes on to explain that he he doesn't want people to conclude that because they gave everything away, that he would tell other people if they're rich that they're wrong, if they're making lots of money. But he said, all I can say is that for me there was no other way. There was an albatross around my neck, and if I wanted to respond to God's call, I had to get rid of it. Perhaps giving it all away is the only way if you're addicted to making money. They, wanted, they didn't want anything to hold them back. He said, hanging on to things would make it impossible for them to go where God called them. And they wanted to be able to go wherever God would call them. So they started vacationing. They went home to their children. They went on a bunch of trips. They spent the next several months together. They the, His partner bought him out. And they were able to finalize everything. They sold their home, their furniture. They helped his parents fix up their house. They went on some vacations. And then they did something that totally changed their lives. They had a friend who had taken up residence in a Christian community called Koinonia in America's Georgia. And they went to Florida on a vacation there and decided on their way home to swing by this community and see, and see this friend and see what it was like. They wound up spending a month there, the month of December. They helped them ship out um, their Christmas orders. It was a community started by a man named Clarence Jordan that had been started decades prior And they wanted to build up a community of believers and they were open to all races and all people. Well, they had gone through a lot of persecution from the local residents and especially from the Ku Klux Klan because there were blacks and whites, you know, living in this kind of farm you know, they didn't live in the same houses, but they ate together and it was kind of a, a, a communal type experience. They shared what they had and they tried to live a Christian life and they were persecuted for it. And so they had started over selling pecans and pecan products and and uh, Clarence Jordan and Millard Fuller really built this incredible partnership together. And as you look through history, these kinds of partnerships now Clarence Jordan wasn't involved in later projects as much but he was a theologian and he was kind of the thinker and the philosopher and Millard was the doer and he was always willing to work really really hard for whatever needed to be created so they fell in love with this community they go home they get all their affairs in order and there were lots of options of things that Millard could do and he felt that the most pressing problem in the country at the time and this is of course in the Uh, mid-60s was the race problem and there was a college called uh, Tougaloo College that was a liberal arts school and they wanted to offer more opportunity for higher education to the black community and so he got involved with the college he well first of all they went on this the 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 mission trip that he had been invited to years before they went on to Africa. So for two months, uh, they left their children with their grandparents, and they went to Africa and did did missionary work and built relationships there and saw the people, and that ended up being a great blessing later. Then he came back, and for several years he worked for the college. He said, "I resumed my work with Tougaloo College," and this is from his earlier work. What he said about it um, at the, it for the present at least. If not for a long time to come, I feel this is where I ought to be. I see the work as a direct extension of the church's ministry to the world and the needs of the people. So he had definitely prepared himself in many ways to understand many principles of work, of business, of finance, and had returned to the good principles that he'd learned through um, his childhood. He went back to being a much more ethical man and... Wanted to do good, and this first call came. You know, this law Five. you hear the call. He feels called to Tougaloo College, and so he does this work for several years. And he's visiting back at uh, Kanoinia, back and forth. They lived there for a time, and eventually he starts helping build homes for the poor around Kanoinia. And that leads to going to Africa and building homes for the poor there. He went to Zaire and he practiced building houses for the poor and, and how they could live biblical principles in that practice and bringing all his organizational skills to bear and his financial skills to bear in this work. And he felt that the bigger calling that he was called to do was solve, help solve the poverty problem by building Low cost housing for the poor, not in a government sponsored way, but giving the poor ownership. They needed ownership of their own property and that would help them to fill the personal integrity and the personal confidence and the work ethic necessary to really rise above the poverty level. He said this, what the poor need isn't charity, it's capital. Not social workers, but co-workers. And what the rich need is a wise, just, and honorable way of divesting themselves of their overabundance. Now, he had experienced that. What happens when you have too much wealth? It can be a curse. And many great philosophers, including Aristotle, have talked about the golden mean. And when you have too much, you've got to give it away. Or it becomes a curse and a a chain around your neck. And that's how he had felt. The overabundant wealthy person has a place that they can give and the rich have have access to the capital that they need. So he built this incredible model. He called it Habitat for Humanity and now it's across the globe. They put in place biblical principles of being invested and they let the poor give what they could give and that was their time and work. So the poor and the community would come together to build them a home. Sometimes it would be donated property. Uh, sometimes it would be property that they had, but they couldn't get a home on it. So they would get a property. They would build a home, a, a conservative home. Um, and the poor would put in the the owners, the new owners of the home. And now it's 300 hours. I'm not sure how he did it in the beginning, but they would help build the home. They would get the the um, all of the... They would have all the tools and supplies donated, and then the community and the homeowner would build the home. And this fund that Millard built up, he would fundraise, and the wealthy would give, and they would help provide the supplies and, and that kind of thing, maybe the property. And then the homeowner, the new homeowner, would pay back the fund in a way that was reasonable for them at no interest. The Bible says that you should not charge the poor interest. And Millard wanted to live by all those biblical financial principles. He said, if you could just give the poor capital access to capital, they could rise, the, raise themselves above the poverty level. And so they would work out the terms of, of the loan to pay back the home. There would always already be a lot of equity in it. And so then they would just pay off the rest of it back to this fund at no interest. So they had done this in the Zaire, they came back in, in 1976, they formed Habitat for Humanity, they kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it, built more homes, built more communities, and then in 1984, Jimmy Carter found out about them, he lived nearby, and he invited them over, and he fell in love with the project, and he kind of gave them name recognition, when he put his name, and his money, and his his connections behind it, it just really exploded at that point. And with that kind of stamp of approval and that name behind it, they were able to form an even more reputable community. They had access to lots more money and they it just expanded all over the world. Now, just to finish this up, we've been really, really long and I know that these mission driven stories can get long and I'm sorry, but I want you to have all the richness of the story. So this goes on. Millard's involved with Habitat for Humanity for about 20 years. And as time goes on, in the late 90s, the board that had always been made up of kind of average people, middle class people who believed in the mission and believed in what was going, what they were doing, decided they needed to up the ante. And now that they were so big and important, they would bring in corporate business leaders, the heads of airlines and big corporations who didn't have the faith base that Millard had begun the organization with and who didn't have some of those biblical principles behind it that they wanted to upgrade and support. They saw that it could do good, that it was a good charitable organization, but they started making it into something that Miller, Millard hadn't envisioned. And he'd always gone by faith and he always had a lot of really great ideas, but they wanted to slow down the pace and they didn't always want to get behind his ideas. And he, when he would bring an idea to them, they would say, well, that's a good idea, but we need to kind of mull it over and we need to make a business plan around it and we need to pitch it a few places and we need to fundraise for it. And and so what happened over time is that the distance between who Millard was and what the organization was and what they represented began to be reflected in the board and it just, it was too big a gap. Eventually the board just fired Millard because they had, over time, slowly brought on more and more people who were not like-minded with him and who didn't understand the religious and principled underpinnings and didn't understand how he worked. And so they didn't want to work with him anymore. So they, it was a non-profit and, and they fired him. Well, he wanted to keep doing what he was doing and he wanted to keep living according to those principles that that the organization had begun with. So he started when he was 70 years old the Fuller Center. That was in 2004 that he was fired from Habitat for Humanity. He started the Fuller Center. He really wanted it. It was again a Christian organization that was built on biblical principles and very openly Christian, although willing and happy to build homes for anyone anywhere and to work with with any group. They wanted to eliminate poverty. And when it first started, he had speaking engagements all over the country and all kinds of events planned. And over time, those dried up. And so they weren't sure what they were going to do next. And then Hurricane Katrina hit and people from Shreveport needed help. Now, people still all over the country loved and trusted Millard. So they had all kinds of money pouring in. And so they went to Shreveport and built homes. Then they got word of a great project in southern Nepal. And so they built homes in southern Nepal. And they just always had plenty of money to build these to build these inexpensive homes. And so they built them for the next five years he was involved in that work. And then in 2009, he died suddenly. And he, uh, the man who's the president now said that at the Fuller Center, they kind of sat down after Millard died and said, were we doing this work for Millard or for the people? And they said it was for the people. So they kept going. And now the organization works such that There's covenant partners around the world, and these covenant partners run little micro, what originally was Habitat for Humanities. They have access to the guidance and the help of the Fuller Center and to funding to help bring these building projects about. So now there's two organizations that build homes for the poor around the world, the Fuller Center and Habitat for Humanity, that were both founded by Millard Fuller. And the Fuller Center is striving to live according to Millard's vision and the godly principles that he put in place. Millard Fuller said, in many situations, it's not a call, is not a call, simply a realization of a need and an agreement that you have the ability to fill that need if you're only willing to do so. When he started the Fuller Center, he said this, when I turned 70, when I turned 70, people came to me and said, you've built housing for a million people. Why don't you take it easy now? But why would I want to do that? I love what I do. I'm not dead yet. I didn't, don't even feel bad. In fact, he says in another quote that he took really good care of his health. He said, um, I have a lot of energy. I believe God loves me. I practice good health habits. I'm careful to get adequate rest and sleep. I like to laugh, and I've been blessed with a wonderful mate. All of this contributes to my energy. How long will it last? Who knows? Uh, But as long as my energy lasts and as long as I'm blessed with a good mind, I intend to stay at it. He said he'd searched the Bible backward and forward and he couldn't find the word retirement. So he wasn't going to stop until he died. He said, I started Habitat when I was 40. Now I've started the Fuller Center at 70 and I have to work faster because I don't have much time left. I've ratcheted up my pace quite a bit because it is a blessing and a privilege to do God's work, to be aggressive doers of good deeds. So that's a little bit about the life of Millard Fuller and Linda Fuller, who was right next to his side every step of the way, who made it possible for him to see the trap that he was in and to get out of it, who loved when he said, let's give everything away. She was all for it by his side and the work that they did, they did hand in hand all their lives as partners. Incredible, incredible people who have absolutely changed the world simply by their willingness to give it all away, to start over again, and to listen to the calls God had for them. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's a privilege and honor to run this podcast and share out with you inspiring stories such as this one. If you want to hear more, go to themissiondrivenmom.com. You can click on the category of mission-driven stories and see all the other mission-driven stories that we've put out over the previous year or so and be inspired by the great men and women who are doing great things for God and that we can do those things too right now today in our lives be more committed to him if you've not gotten your copy of the audiobook the mission driven life head on over there and get that as well we'll be launching a new website in a couple months and may not have that option available for you so you may want to grab it while it's there thanks so much for joining me today and i'll see you next time